that they've easy. The volatility and the upswings and the mood. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Richard Harris and it's 31st of December 2014, New Year's Eve. Hong Kong bankers do well with stock and bond issuances this year, up over 50%. Global markets relax a little as the year rolls to an end. And we take a look at the big market mover of the year. Nope, it's not oil. It's the green stuff, the US dollar. It's a day of putting to bed the old year and coming up with bright new blue sky ideas for the new. And they don't come bluer than our market's guest for today, which is Fraser Howey of New Age Financial. Fraser, apart from being a market commentator, is author of Red Capitalism and Privatising China. And he has a few blue sky ideas coming up. And to help to lead us into the new year, resolving for the first time this year to get his predictions on the markets <laughs> completely right, is our regular guest host, Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> and what is your New Year's resolution? Well, my, my New Year's resolution for 2015 is to actually do the resolution I made in 2014, which I subsequently put off from 2013. So I'm a serial defaulter on New Year's resolutions. But I, I first planned this in about 2011, which was to do a round-the-world charity tour, where I'm going to visit all five continents and spend uh, one week in each country doing something, whether it be with um, children, disadvantaged people, poor people, whatever. So um, I've been planning this for a number of years, but I'm, I'm finally going to try and do it this year. Well, we'll hold you to that because we can put the photographs up on the Money for Nothing uh, Facebook page, which uh, I hope all our listeners will be looking at. Anyway, back to news. Some things never change. Bankers' bonuses should be good next year. Hong Kong has had an excellent year f- raising funds for companies on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Fundraising was the highest in four years, up 41% on 2013, with companies raising nearly 66 billion US dollars, over 500 billion Hong Kong dollars. The city's money raising through initial public offering fundraisings pushed us into number two spot behind the New York Stock Exchange. In addition, largely mainland companies raised a further 53 billion US dollars, that's 400 billion Hong Kong dollars, in renminbi bonds, which are issued in Hong Kong. They're known as dim sum bonds, and they were uh, up bonds 76% on last year. Hong Kong retail sales picked up in November, despite the closure of major roads due to Occupy Central. The figures issued yesterday by the Census and Statistics Department have checked a fall that lasted several months as the economic slowdown and the corruption drive in China reduced mainland buyers. The figures were supported by a surge in consumer durable purchases, including smartphones, but dragged back by a continued sluggishness in jewellery and watch sales. And mainland train makers merged today to form a combined entity known as CRRC Corporation. The move combines already the world's two largest rail makers and provides a platform for China to export their train technology around the world. Now, we had two central bankers on the show yesterday. Let's have a third. Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, um, He's not a fan of quantitative easing, as his uh, successor was keen on, the heavy injection of money into the economy. And this is what he thinks what will happen when you remove that liquidity. And my basic view is that there's an awful lot of uh, basically a position where the uh, pulling back, which they're going to eventually have to do, well, well, can be done in a not easy manner, but in a way which may, dis- may create somewhat less disruption than I had previously thought, but the disruption is going to be there. 
And when that pattern starts, we're going to find the type of volatility that we are seeing on the upside in the stock market show up on the downside. So not altogether positive. And when asked whether we're going to see inflation in the future as a result of QE, he gives a typical Greenspan answer. Over the longer run, there's no nothing in monetary history uh, which suggests that you can create the degree of balances in central banks that we have now without ultimately engendering pickup in the price level. But we are far removed from that now because we're still in a position where the economy is, despite the recent indications of middle of the year rise, uh, despite those indications, we still have a very sluggish economy. Effective demand in the United States is weak. Effective demand in Europe is worse. And needless to say, there are problems in China. Well, global markets eased yesterday, despite U.S. consumer confidence figures improving. The strong movements of the last few days corrected themselves as investors flattened their books for year-end. Volumes were very low. U.S. stocks fell by a quarter of a percent, with the S&P falling back to uh, 2,082. The Euro stocks index came off 1.5% to 3,136, as worries about the future of Greece in the euro weighed on markets. Asia was also plagued by red numbers. The Nikkei was off 1.6% to 17,450, and Hong Kong was also off 1% to 23,501. Shanghai, which made a five-year high two days ago, was pretty well flat, finishing at 3,166. On the currency markets, uh, holding fairly steady too towards year-end, euro holding steady just below 122, uh, and the yen is at uh, 120.63. Uh, Brent oil prices remained volatile, but settled just below yesterday's level of $57.62, so uh, still coming off a little bit. Uh, Alan Greenspan doesn't hold out a lot of hope for the oil price recovering in the short term. What is occurring is that uh, OPEC is no longer the marginal producer, and as far as I'm concerned, at the moment, OPEC is not functioning, and I'm not all convinced that short of a major change in the Saudis' view of the future, that that's going to fundamentally change. And as we've got uh, this kind of program, this kind of year, looking forward to more risks from Jim Awed from Plimsoll Mark Capital in New York. The critical things you want to look at are growth in the U.S. economy, uh, the fixed income markets in the United States, and of course, you've got to watch the price of oil. If it keeps going down from these levels, it's likely to cause some, some surprise dislocation somewhere in either a corporate or sovereign sector. So the, the, the best news for, for the world would be oil's down a lot for it to stabilize at around these levels. And we take a look now at the big market mover of the year. No, it's not the black stuff oil. It's the green stuff, the U.S. dollar. The dollar's outperformed every one of its 31 major peers this year, except for one, the Hong Kong dollar. Yes, our own currency, because it's pegged to the U.S. dollar, is the only one to keep pace. It's the first time that the U.S. dollar has done that in 17 years. Uh, The renminbi is down 2.5% against the dollar. The euro has fallen 13%. The ruble's lost a third of its value. And the Ukrainian hyvnia has almost halved. But the worst currency this year is Bitcoin, which has lost nearly 60% of its value. 
Currency is very important. It means that every investment we make in another currency has to overcome a headwind of the currency movements to make a profit. Likewise, it also means that non-dollar investors do very well in dollar assets because they have an immediate built-in profit if the currency moves in their favor. Um, Peter, strong dollar means that U.S. exports are likely to get hit in 2015. But on the other hand, uh, imports uh, should be much more positive. Uh, Imports are needed to generate growth in places like China and Europe that export to the U.S. So isn't that a good thing? Well, that's true. But the the strong dollar, which is going to be a very, very big theme next year, has one very, very important effect. And that's because the world is, in effect, at peak um, debt. All the major market economies now have credit market debt compared to their current national income, ranging from about 350 to 500%. Now, much of that borrowing is in dollars. It's the world's reserve currency. So if you borrow in US dollars, you are in effect short dollars. So the rising of the US dollar makes it much more expensive to service um, that debt. And that's particularly true of emerging market um, economies. So although, yes, um, they hopefully can export more. A lot of emerging market corporates borrow in US dollars and they're finding their funding costs as a result of this strong dollar is is going up quite rapidly. So still not a win-win situation. Well, let's bring in Fraser Howie, who's Senior Director at New Edge Financial in Singapore. Uh, How are you this morning, Fraser? Maybe we haven't got Fraser. Hello? Oh, Fraser, you are there. Hi. Yeah, morning to you. Good, good. Your your mic's up, hopefully. Um, Fraser, good to hear from you this morning. Uh, You've given us a list of some uh, blue sky thinking, which is excellent. But just very quickly, just for the the first question, what's your general view about 2015 that you think is going to happen? What's your consensus case? Oh, I'm, I'm never sure about consensus cases. It's a bit like resolutions. They seem to come on me. It's all of a sudden it's 2015 or the next year before I'm really prepared for it. Yeah. Um, I think th- I would say the big story, it's uh, you, you talked earlier about is it, is it uh, oil or whatever. I would say, again, it's America, as they've already talked about, and it's China. I think they're the two big factors you have. Europe, we know, is mired in, in, in recession effectively, and you either have the U.S., which is it going to continue strong, and, is, and China, how is it going to cope? And I think there it's going to be difficult because it's, uh, it's bleak outlook. I think 2015 is going to be a very difficult year. And as one of your commentators said there, with oil prices falling so dramatically, that's going to cause a shock somewhere, whether it's corporate or whether it's sovereign. This is the big question, isn't it, that, uh, uh, the, that all of these sharp movements, actually they have winners, but they can also have big losers that can pull the winners down with them. I think that's absolutely true. When you have movements, as you've seen in such major commodities, um, as you've seen in oil in the past few months, everyone's been looking simply at the price action on, on, the, on the day-to-day moves, and that's very shocking, but it distracts from the longer-term impacts of it, and that's going to be significant. But, of course, there's good impacts as well. Anyone who drives a car is only getting a lot cheaper oil, but obviously there's a lot of countries who've become very dependent um, on, uh, on, uh, on oil exports, and, uh, and their revenues are down substantially. So, so Fraser, I mean, we've heard a lot of talk about how the, the, the collapsing oil price benefits, but in particular U.S. consumers, although it seems to me that that is very much a zero-sum game because there's also some losers there. Do you worry about, you know, maybe where we are going to see some of those sharp losses, perhaps amongst the shale producers in the U.S. and elsewhere? Yes, no, I think that if, if I have a worry on the low oil, low oil price, it's how does it play into the shale game? Now, I'm no expert on the shale at all. But I think the shale game, as you know, has for a number of years now been talked about as the great, sort of, uh, the great white hope, if you like, of, U- of the U.S. economy, how this is going to basically provide cheap oil or cheap energy for the states for the next hundred years. 
And you have to wonder, with prices so low, is that still going to become economically viable? So I think you could see a shakeout there because it's been such a, a great hope and it's not necessarily been perhaps, uh, it, it's been cheap compared to where oil at $100. And I think that's a worry. If that starts to, uh, to, to fade as an industry or is not the great promise that it was, then how does that play out longer term? Yeah, certainly. It's all a case of balance. Now, I'd like to go back to China because you are a China specialist and you've given us a few blue sky um, uh, things about China. I mean, first of all, you've said the economy is not particularly weak, um, but you're also looking at quite a lot of geopolitical issues I can see here. Well, I always think it's, I think when, especially people in markets, they always just simply focus on the numbers and the economics. And I think the danger is there's still a lot of geopolitical risk out there. Now, that's uh, the nature of geopolitical risk is, you know, it may or may not happen like anything. It's very difficult to factor these things in. But I think it's always dangerous to, to ignore the geopolitical risk in this area. You know, when you look at your, the, the neighborhood, you obviously have North Korea, which seems to become more and more unstable. And you also have a North Korea which is losing its only friend being China. And so you have to wonder how that plays out. There's certainly um, reason to be concerned there. Um, you look at the South China Sea um, issues a year ago, of course, that was a big concern. It seems to have faded. And you saw China and Japan some degree of, uh, of accommodation. But, uh, but China still continues to encroach on the, the Diaoyu Islands. It still encroaches in the, in the South China Sea and with various um, islands it's building or oil um, rigs that, it, uh, that are drilling. So you can certainly see flashpoints there. I think also domestically within China as well, though, that things are probably a lot more unstable or unsettled than often uh, the, the, the Communist Party would like us to have a think. So, Fraser, um, on, on the geopolitical front, I mean, you know, both Russia and China are both trying to get out of the sphere of influence of the US, particularly the US dollar and the influence that the Fed has on their policies. Is it possible that maybe Russia and China themselves could um, sort of come closer together sort of economically and maybe try and create a new um, sort of axis to try and, you know, compete with uh, the, the US sphere of influence? I, I, I think... You know, many people have talked about that. I think it's completely un- impractical. It's simply not going to happen. Um, I think what you will see is, or you could certainly see, in Russia's very weakened condition because oil has fallen so much um, and such mismanagement of the economy, you could certainly see the Chinese trying to buy Russia on the cheap, if you like, um, and, uh, and try and exert more economic influence. I think that's going to backfire, though. I think there's still a lot of distrust at the moment between the two, the two countries and that any sort of a recent friendship is driven very much more of a common enemy, if you like, i.e. the U.S. But I think ultimately a, a common axis um, is not going to work. The Russian economy is very much just an oil-dependent economy. It needs a lot of restructuring. It's got horrible demographics, even worse than Chinese demographics. And so that this is some greater you know, axis in the, in the world. I don't think it's happening. It's going to continue to be a nuisance to the Americans, and I think they'll not play along on a whole host of international fronts. But uh, as a long-term partnership, I don't think it's going to work at all. But China bought quite a lot of gas from Russia, I think it was uh, about three or four months ago. Do you have any idea where those prices were struck? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think that that big gas deal, which is going to take decades or certainly years to, to come online, they have to build the pipelines, etc., um, is I think a lot of the economic terms were relatively were sort of basically secret. I think the Chinese were actually still buying though cheaper than the, the Russians were selling to Europe. So it wasn't even that great a deal. Um, I think though that, the, you know, that 
that's a natural, um, you know, Russia's got lots of gas and lots of energy. China needs lots of gas and energy. So that's no real surprise there, though. But it's not necessary. I think that's going to actually cause, in some ways, a lot of problems down the line because there's going to continue to be distrust. The, the Russians will be thinking they're selling too cheaply to the Chinese. And right. the Chinese will no doubt get, get the hump and they think the Russians are ungrateful. Yes, yes. There's, uh, uh, everybody always thinks they're robbed, isn't, aren't they, in a, in a transaction like that? Um, just finally for, for this bit, we hope you'll stay on the line uh, to listen to um, what we've got up next and also to give your comments. Um, geopolitical risk. We can see in China that maybe political issues in Beijing will impact the economy quite substantially because of the government's influence in the economy. But really, how much would a little spat between Japan and China uh, or in the South China Sea or these kind of issues, how much would they be likely to impact, say, global growth? In some ways, they won't. But again, what you do is, though, that you, you all of a sudden, Asia is no longer uh, just simply an economic growth story. All of a sudden, Asia becomes a, a political risk and geopolitical risk story. How can you have Asia's two largest economies, the world's second and third largest economies, basically not cooperating? And you could be tit-for-tat sanctions. It could be, you know... Um, you know, boycotts of Japanese goods or, or things like that. I think that just makes a very unsettled environment. And yes. that's not a good environment to do business. And when it seems in their interest to do so. Well, that's great, Fraser. If you stay on the line. I'll stay with you, certainly. And uh, it's currently 8.20. How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget? Boost the economy. Meet housing needs. Care for the elderly. Or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline 2810-3768. Well, share prices move in the very short term and maybe even longer on news flow. A piece of news comes out and the market interprets it, sometimes correctly at first and sometimes it takes a little while. But in the end, the price will incorporate all the tiny little bits of news about that stock or market. Now, of all people, the US Secretary of Defense under George Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, put it very succinctly in a press conference in 2002. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And if one looks throughout the history of our country and other free countries, it is the latter category that tend to be the difficult ones. Well, unknown unknowns can certainly be difficult because they're the things that hit the market suddenly. Something like the sudden realisation of the debt of the debt crisis in 2008. Or the massive damage that a rising dollar and a falling share price could do to the Russian market. Unknown unknowns are more guessable than predictable. And Peter and I have come up with three guesses each today for the big risks that might surprise the market in 2015. So, Peter, we're going to start with you. Um, you think the S&P 500 will correct by at least a third in 2015. I mean, that's a 
big bear market. Yep, I think it could actually correct by even more than that. But I, I think um, we'll start with a third, and I think there's two reasons for that. In, one is that corporate profitability um, is now at a multi-decade high. So S&P 500 profit margins stand at about 10.3%, and after-tax profits as a percentage of US GDP stand at a record 10.8%. The long-term average is about 65 Now, as Jeremy Grantham once famously said, profit margins are probably the most mean-reverting series in finance, and if profit margins don't mean-revert, then something's gone badly wrong with their capitalism. So what basically you're, you're <laughs> saying is that things have gone so far away from the mean that they're they're likely to come back but a lot of people have got very poor by betting on the return to the mean. Well, you have to also combine it with valuations, and it's the combination of the two that I think is lethal right now for US equities. And if you look at, and I don't mean looking at forward PEs or 12-month trailing PEs, look at something like a cyclically adjusted PE, which is has a much, much better correlation with um, future annual returns. It's only ever been higher once before in history, and that was in 2000 at the height of the tech bubble. And if you look at something like price to revenue, as opposed to price to earnings, which also has a much better correlation with future returns. Price to revenues for the S&P 500 is now about 1.8 compared so, to a norm so of You're saying the market's really pretty expensive. Fraser, are you as bearish as Peter? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I don't necessarily follow the US stocks. I think, though, that I, I'm still relatively bullish on the US economy in the sense that it's, uh, it will remain relatively strong. But as Peter well knows, that stocks in the economy can be very uncorrelated for a long period of time. So having seen such a strong stock market performance, you can certainly get a, a significant correction, although I think the economy will, uh, will remain relatively robust and firm. Yeah, I'm sort of in that camp. Sorry, Peter. Uh, Peter, number two, Russia will back its currency with gold. Currency's fallen so far. Um, this would be a way of trying to strengthen This is a bit of a, you know, a wild card, but I I think if you think about what Russia needs to do, the problem is at the moment it has a currency crisis. It certainly doesn't want that to morph into a a 1998 style debt crisis, but the problem is even though it has a lot of reserves, it has about 375 billion of foreign exchange reserves, it could very easily use that up quite quickly on having to bail out its... um, big banks and big corporates. And we've already seen it use 10% of the money it put aside for banks on just one um, bank a, a week or so ago. So one of the things it needs to do is if it's not going to have capital controls, um, it's clearly not going to make the compromises needed to avoid Western sanctions. Um, it's never going to peg the ruble to the US dollar. What does it do to stabilise its currency? And maybe one of the ways in which it could do that is to say that in a world where you know everyone is printing money as if there's no tomorrow, we're going to actually peg it to uh, back it with gold. Well, I know you're a gold bug, so maybe you're talking your own book. Anyway, we're going to come on to number three. Uh, You think China growth will fall below 6%? I think it will. I think the official target will be reduced down to about 7%, but I think actually um, the Chinese government is actually going to de-emphasise GDP growth and prioritise structural reform, and it will also emphasise other indicators such as employment, social welfare, maybe climate change, mm. which will take priority over GDP Fraser, growth. Fraser, what do you think about China growth for next year? Well, I think he's, uh, I think he's right. I, think I would argue that growth is probably already below 6% in China. The difficulty is what are the official figures going to say? And I think they will not go below 7%. But I think effective growth on the ground is probably already at 6% or, uh, or substantially lower. Um, all the figures indicate that Chinese growth is very tough, that businesses are having... Um, real problems, the inventories are high, overcapacity remains extremely high, 
and so it's certainly going to continue to be weak. It's a difficult juggling act for the Chinese because they need to de-emphasize the growth and focus on the reform. But then, of course, the danger is if they don't get the reform, how do you, if you don't get the growth, how can you effectively finance the reform? That's right, and There's I suppose the corruption um, campaign has been trying to also to get some of the wealth shifted from uh, from one pocket to another in order to try and um, help the people feel a little bit more comfortable about these reforms. Yes, no, that, that's, that's very true. I think the, the trouble is they're, from, they're starting from such a bad starting point, frankly, that this, for all, well over a decade there's been just such a, uh, sort of an imbalance in the economy. And now they're trying to, to, to readdress that or, or unpart and yet they don't really want to take the full pain that comes from that. Um, and so it's very difficult for them. Okay, well, right. Well, my, my bets for this year, the Blue Sky things, first of all, I think there may well be a big cyber attack. Uh, you know, we've seen Sony and Microsoft hit this week. Uh, we've seen Target, eBay, Evernote, and a wide variety of big companies being hit. Uh, you just almost couldn't imagine if somebody did a cyber attack on some of the payments company, the confusion that could happen with the banking payment system. I don't know if you two have uh, any thoughts on that. I think this is going to be a huge risk. I mean, you know, already we're seeing, you know, very, very sophisticated people, sometimes backed by various governments around the world, um, getting very, very good at hacking into, you know, big companies like Sony. I mean, you would think that Sony will be very, very you good at resisting this. They would. Yeah, and it seems as if the whole uh, the whole thing is open at the moment. Right, my other uh, feature was a crisis default. Now, this probably isn't very clever because I think both of you would probably reckon that we've had so much volatility in things like the oil down and the dollar up that there could be a few pack of cards out there. Fraser, have you got any particular thoughts about default next year? Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's that's highly that's uh, that's a good risk out there that should sort of it's a known unknown or or a known known as it were. It's a case of which country. Um, obviously, Russia we, has been the focus recently, but I think the other one out there, of course, is Venezuela. Yes, it seems to be going from bad to worse, mm-hmm. and uh, it'll be interesting there. The Russia-China axis is well known. Would the Chinese step in to basically bail out Venezuela? That would be interesting. They've spent a lot of money in there. It's not been particularly productive to date. Um, but it would be interesting to see if they went to, to exercise global reach into the Americas themselves. Well, yeah, a possible uh, Western naval base in the yeah. in the Western Hemisphere. Something like that. That would be that would be a very big step for them. Probably one too far, but certainly it would uh, it would really challenge their thinking. Well, thank you, Fraser, for exercising your mind with us today. Uh, that's Fraser Harry Howie, senior director at New Age Financial and the author of Red Capitalism and Privatizing China. And have a happy new year. Uh, Don't forget the podcast. If you've missed any of these things, we do have the podcast and they go back well over a year. Just search for RTHK Radio 3 Money for Nothing. Uh, Peter, take us out of 2014 into 2015. Are we going to be as comfortable in 365 days' time as we are today? Well, we're going to see a lot of volatility in 2015, that's for sure, and I think by definition that will make people rather uncomfortable and we will see, you know, um, as a result of that volatility, some big winners and some big losers. Yes, and the big question is uh, always going to be quite how big the losers are, because I think the world is probably in a position where they can pretty well accommodate uh, a lot of problems, but maybe not in a position where, uh, where they could accommodate a big one or something in a sense Area. And the central banks are running out of bullets. Um, you know, look at Japan. I mean, it's, it's fired all its bullets now. There's really nothing more it can do in terms of monetary policy, but yet it's still not working. If anything, you know, the Japanese economy is, is worsening by the month. That's right.
But would 2015 be the year that this comes to pass, or do you think we're maybe looking at 2016? I think people are going to start focusing next year on debt. Debt is going to be a big, big issue. The amount of it is around the world, and, and I think we're at peak debt. Even at zero interest rates, there's a limit to how much debt that you can keep on issuing because it's dependent overall upon the economy where, you know, and the returns that you get on it's the assets. It's got to be backed by something. It's got to be backed by something, and you've got to get a return on the assets that you use that debt to buy. Well, Peter, thank you very much for your contributions to us in 2014. Uh, have a very happy New Year, and we'll see you then. And happy New Year to you too and to all the listeners. And uh, before we go to the news we'll have the weather uh, it will be fine rather cool in the morning and at night dry during the day with a maximum temperature of about 19 degrees light to moderate northeasterly winds strengthening from the north tonight and uh, it should remain fine and dry through new year's day generally falling to around 12 degrees or below uh, so it'll be rather cold temperature at the moment at the hong kong observatory is 14 degrees centigrade and the relative humidity is 81 percent Now the news read by Todd Harding. A teenage girl is to spend the New Year holiday and the next three weeks in detention at a children's home, while the courts consider an application from police for a care and protection order against her. The 14-year-old was arrested eight days ago for chalking a flower on a staircase next to the former Admiralty occupation site dubbed the Lennon Wall. The girl's solicitor, Patricia Ho, described the order as very unusual. Usually such an order is given in cases concerning maybe extreme child neglect, self-harm, situation where the security of a child is under threat. So common examples would be maybe if a child is prostituting herself, children who are trading drugs or maybe are constantly hovering outside discos, bar, 